Good morning once again and welcome to Grace Church. A special welcome to those that are watching from home, both here in the U.S. and other places in the world, especially our good friends, our Christian brothers and sisters in Cameroon. Welcome to uh, Grace Church of Philly. The service is a little bit shorter this morning. We want to give uh, those who are driving time to beat what may be the worst of the snow today, but uh, we're glad for those who did make it this morning. Thank you for coming. Take your Bible again and look with me in Hebrews chapter 2, looking at the second part of the sermon that I began last week on Jesus, the glorious man, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. This morning I'll be looking especially at verses 10 and following, but I'll begin reading in verse 5, Hebrews 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It had been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Last week, we looked a little bit at what it means to experience and reflect the glory of God. We saw that uh, in our text, in verse 7 and verse 9 and verse 10, we have the mention of glory. In verse 7, we have humanity was crowned with glory and honor. But then we understand that this glory and honor that God gave humanity in the original creation has been marred. It has been distorted. And even though we are still in the image of God, that image has a distortion to it because of sin. Someone has likened it to a child building a sandcastle on the beach. And as the waves come in and begin to hit that sandcastle, you can still see the remnants of the sandcastle, but it does not look like it was originally made. And that is true about us. We are made in the image of God, but sin has distorted that image. Verse 9 reminds us that Jesus, the glorious man, is the human, the perfect human, the only obedient man who is crowned with glory and honor forever. And that Jesus, according to verse 10, that God, through Jesus, is bringing many sons back into the glory that God has designed for them. We saw that our destiny is to experience and to reflect the glory of God, to know him and to enjoy him and to display uh, his character in the world around us. But again, we fail at that. We saw last week that death is the unavoidable evidence that reminds us that no human being ever fully achieves his destiny. Death declares that we have all ultimately failed. We don't rule the world. We don't rule ourselves. And it doesn't matter what, whatever success we may enjoy in this world, whatever achievements we may gain, death declares in the end that we fail to achieve glory on our own. We seek, we need the glory and honor that only God can give us in Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that in order to truly experience and reflect this glory that God has for us, we must first confess our failure. Or simply putting it, we must repent of who we are and what we have done and what we have tried to achieve in life. And sometimes that repentance is for our rebellion. Sometimes that repentance is for our righteousness. That is, sometimes we repent because we, we deny God, we rebel against God, we break his commandments. 
And sometimes we need to repent because we are achieving, trying to achieve our own righteousness and thinking that we can achieve our own glory. We must repent and realize no human being can ever achieve the destiny that God has for them on their own. We must repent of our self-sufficiency. But this morning, I'd like to focus on the second point of that message. If we will achieve, if we will experience and reflect the glory of God, we must not only repent, we must rest in Jesus Christ alone. Or another way of putting it is we must have faith in Jesus And this is essentially the gospel. We repent of who we are and we trust in what God has provided for us through Jesus Christ. We must rest in Christ alone through whom God brings many sons into glory. And that's the the, the center point of the second part of our text this morning. God wants to bring fallen creatures back to the glory that he designed for them. If we are still seeking our own glory, then in the end, we will settle for a glory that will pass with our death. But when we come to Christ, when we share his glory, it's an eternal glory. And through the work of the Spirit, we begin, even in this world, to experience that glory and reflect that glory. And as 2 Corinthians 3 says, we, little by little, are being transformed into that glory by the work of the Spirit of God in our life. The question I'd like to answer from our text this morning is, How exactly does God bring fallen sinners to glory through Jesus Christ? How does God bring us to glory? And I want to answer that in three brief ways from our text this morning. First of all, our text tells us that Jesus takes on humanity to succeed where All humans have failed, especially where Adam had failed. Again, I remind you that the writer is referring back to Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is reflecting on Genesis chapter 1 and uh, verses 28 and following, where God creates man and gives him dominion over all the earth, over all things. And the psalmist in Psalm 8 reflects on that, that that what is man that you have given him such a significant role in in this world? But we realize that we've all failed to do that. As I've said before, we failed to rule the world, we failed to rule ourselves. And at the end of the day, all of us can look back with some regret that we have not perfectly obeyed God, that we have done sins not only of commission where we have disobeyed what God has told us to do, but more often we are guilty of sins of omission. We do not do all of the things that God has called humans to do. And specifically, 
to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, our body. No, we have failed to be what God has created us to be. So what do we do? When we look at ourselves and we look at our failure and we come to despair, what do we do? Our text says, but we see Jesus. If you look at yourself long enough, and you should at times take a good look at yourself, it should not bring you to pride. It should bring you to humility. It should bring you to a moment of shame, perhaps a moment of despair. But don't stay there, the writer of Hebrews says. Don't just live with the, with, with, with the awareness of your failure to be fully human. But we see Jesus, this Jesus, he says, who was made a little lower than the angels. And in the Greek text, that can be taken two ways. It can be, made, it can be taken to mean that in nature, in his, in his being as a human, he was lower than angels. And in that sense, it means that because he was human, he was subject to death. He could die. Angels don't die, except the fallen angels who were already committed to death. So it could mean that he's lower in nature, or as some would take it, it could mean lower for a little time. That is, it's a temporary lower than angels. It is incarnation and is living on this earth, but in his exaltation, that would change. And in some sense, both are true. He's lower by nature because Jesus would die. And he's lower for just a little time because he would be resurrected and glorified and made ruler over all things. We see Jesus and it's interesting how he says we see him. You know, in some Christian traditions, when they wear a cross, they wear what they call a crucifix. They wear an image of Christ suffering on the cross. Well, evangelicals generally, when they wear a cross, they wear an empty cross. And they're saying something that, that even though we do and must reflect on the suffering of Christ for our sin, we must kneel at the cross and see him dying for us. We must be broken as we remember at the Lord's table what Jesus did in his death for us. But we always see that through the lens of the resurrection. The writer says we see him crowned with glory and honor. We don't forget the cross, but we look at the cross through the resurrection of Christ and his ascension and his glorification. We live on the victory side of the crucifixion. Our text tells us that this Jesus, who we see crowned with glory and honor, who tasted death for every man. And some would say, well, how do you 
taste death. You know, how do you get a, a, a little bit of death? Because you can't get a little bit of death. Death is death. So even though the writer is using the word taste, he's not using it in the sense that we use it. That is, we take a little sip of something. He's using it in the sense that he fully experienced death. He tasted it. He experienced it. And when you experience death, you experience all of death. He died. And it was in his suffering, he says, and in his tasting death that God made him a perfect Savior. You mean that Jesus, in his absolute righteousness, in his purity, in his deity, was not a perfect Savior? And the Bible would say, no, he could not save you without suffering for you. Because he is God, he is holy. And his holiness is offended by our sin. And his justice says, my sin must be judged. It must be paid for. And so to be a perfect savior, he must be one who takes my sin and takes my judgment and suffers in my place so that he can become my perfect savior from sin. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just suffer for me to rescue me from the damnation that I deserve. He brings me into his family. He creates a new family. God's interest is not only in bringing his son Jesus to glory. God's interest is in bringing many sons to glory through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's able to do that, we will see. He's able to do it despite our failures, despite our sin, despite our times of shame and disobedience. He's able to do that, as we often say in one of our benedictions coming from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you, stumble, keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You mean God is able to bring many sons, weak sons, at times fallen sons, disobedient sons. Yes, he is able to bring them and to present them blameless before his presence in glory. The writer is so caught up with this idea that God is creating this new family, not just bringing one son, but many sons to glory, that he digs back again into the Old Testament scripture. And he uses three texts words from the Old Testament that he puts into the mouth of Jesus Christ so that they become his words. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now that's referring back to the statement 
that both he who sanctifies and they who are being sanctified are of one source, or as some translations say, of one family. And what he's saying there is that both Jesus and those that are coming to Jesus are both holy, they're both part of one holy family. He is making us, he has made us holy, and that is why he's not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Otherwise, on our own merits, Jesus would look at John Davis and say, I don't want you as my brother. I know what you think at times. I know how you fail at times. I know how you are weak in faith at times. I don't want you as my brother. When he looks at us on our own, there is nothing in us that would make him want to invite us into his family. But the one who sanctifies and those, you and I, who are being made holy, we are of one family. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because he's made us and is making us holy. And then he quotes the Old Testament. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. We have this intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ, praising God together as brothers and sisters to Christ, lifting up the name of our great God together. In the second quotation, and again, I will put my trust in him. It's not just you and I who live by faith. We live by faith in the word of God because we model what our elder brother Jesus Christ did in his humanity. He lived by faith in the word of God. He said to the devil when being tempted, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And even Jesus in his humanity was dependent upon the words of his father. And the point of the third quotation, Behold, I and the children God has given me. One author put it this way, the description of Christians as the children of Christ is peculiar to this epistle among all of the New Testament writings that Jesus has children. But it's sort of indicated in Isaiah 9, chapter, uh, Isaiah 9 and verse 6, in that great verse that predicts the coming Messiah, and one of his titles will be the everlasting Father. We are invited into the family of God through Jesus Christ. We are born because of him, in some sense, he is our father. We are his children. 
What a wonderful thing Jesus does in his perfect humanity. He succeeds where Adam fails. So that through Jesus Christ, God not only brings his son to glory, he brings many sons to glory. But the second point he makes to reemphasize the particular work of Christ in redemption. The second point he makes is he dies our death and delivers us from the fear of death. How does God bring many sons to glory? By Jesus becoming the perfect man. Secondly, by Jesus becoming our substitute, by dying our death. Why does Jesus take on flesh and blood. One simple answer, to die. Another part of the answer would be to live the life that we could never live. But ultimately, he takes on flesh to die, and he says, so that he might deliver us from the fear of death. Now, I'm not sure that most unbelievers live consciously with the fear of death. I know some do. I know that I did at times as an unbeliever because I knew the gospel. You know, I, I, knew, the, I knew the consequences of rejecting Christ. And there were, there were times when I feared that I was going to hell. But I'm not sure that most believers, non-believers, uh, fear death consciously, though I suspect that unconsciously it drives a lot of what unbelievers do. It causes them to behave in ways that they're trying to achieve their own Glory, their own happiness, their own uh, independence, their own uh, security in life. They're behaving in ways that, that please Satan, that make the devil happy when we live selfishly, when we live only for the present. And in that sense, they are enslaved, though maybe unconsciously, they are enslaved to this fear of death, trying to find some permanence in this world on their own merit. And then there are other unbelievers who are slaves to the fear of death in such a way, knowing that they must meet a God someday. They turn to religion. They turn to achieving their own self-righteousness. But Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. Which means I need no longer to be compelled to live for my own pleasures, my own happiness on my own terms. Which means if I don't fear death, I can believe that regardless of how much I may suffer for obedience or suffer for Christ in this world, that death only means that I come into the presence of God. I don't need to fear death 
and try to achieve my own righteousness to please a holy God because I have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus died to deliver us from the fear of death. Again, one author says it is ironical that human beings who were destined beings who were destined to rule over the creation should find themselves in the posture of a slave, paralyzed through the fear of death. Created to rule, that was our destiny, and yet, he says, we live like slaves, paralyzed by death. And Jesus comes along, and he takes death. Death, which was the power of Satan. The means by which Satan would destroy the Messiah as prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, that Satan would come and bruise the heel of the Messiah, that he would, he would hurt him severely. And of course, Satan intended in driving the mob to crucify Jesus Christ, that death would be his defeat. And yet the writer of Hebrews shows this great reversal, that Jesus takes death, the tool of Satan. And he turns it upside down. And through dying death, he delivers all of those who through fear of death lived as slaves to Satan. He dies our death to set us free. That's how he brings us to glory. But thirdly, he sustains us in our weakness. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He not only becomes man to achieve the perfect humanity that we have failed to achieve. He not only becomes man to die the death that we deserve to die, but he becomes man so that he can empathize with us in our weakness, so that he can be the priest who truly understands the people that he's representing, and so that as a priest, he is not only the priest, he is also the sacrifice that the priest would make in behalf of people. He sustains us in our weakness. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, who's he talking about? Those who are being tempted. Well, I hope you realize that's you. That's you every day, facing the choice of will I obey God or will I obey the desires of my own flesh or the temptations of Satan. He is able to help those 
who are being tempted. And he does that in two reasons, in two ways. One, he sustains us by delivering us from the dread of God's wrath. That wherever I am in my temptation, whether I am in victory or I am in defeat, and we both we all experience both, I must always remember that Jesus is always the propitiation for my sin. I wrote a little thing uh, the other day that I posted on Facebook about God giving us a new day. Just to be reminded that when Jesus Christ died for our sins, when he became the propitiation, which means simply the, the, the means by which God's wrath toward me is removed. When he became that propitiation, when he became that propitiation, he removed God's wrath from me for yesterday's sins and for today's sins and for tomorrow's sins that Jesus Christ is always at all times when I'm being tempted, when I'm victorious in that temptation, and when I'm defeated in that, te that temptation, Jesus Christ never fails to be the propitiation for our sins. And 1 John 2 reminds us of that, that Jesus is our advocate. That even though we should live lives that never sin, the reality is, the great possibility is, we do sin. And Jesus is always there saying, I died their death. And my blood satisfies the debt that they owe to a holy God for yesterday's sins and today's sins and tomorrow's sins. I am their advocate. He sustains us by delivering us from a dread of God's wrath. And he sustains us, our text says, by helping us in our temptation. Now, how does he do that, I have to ask? Because I know there are times when I've been tempted that I've failed. Did Jesus fail to help me? And there have been times in my temptation, hopefully more times, when I've come through it, being faithful to God. Is it only then that Jesus is our helper? It is, is it only with those who are always victorious that he helps those? And I would say, no. He helps us in our victory by always reminding us that our victory is his victory. Our victory is not my strength, my ability, my strong will, my superior spirituality. If I've come through a temptation, he has helped me. He helps me by reminding me that he is the victory. He has conquered sin and death. And when I look to him, I can find the strength to make it through. But I would say he helps me 
even in my failure. He helps me by reminding me that his victory is not at all undone by my failure. His victory is still my victory. And that gives me hope. That's how he helps me. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope for restoration. There's hope for a new day. He helps those who are being tempted whether they are victorious or whether they are defeated, he is always the propitiation for our sins. He removes the wrath of God toward us. We can never achieve our own glory. We can only repent of our failed attempts to do that. And we can look to Jesus the perfect man, the second Adam, Jesus who crowned with glory and honor, but he drank the cup. He experienced death for us. Jesus, who always stands by the Father's side saying, he belongs to me. His victory is my victory. And in his defeat, He still owns my victory. Look to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us new eyes that we can see Jesus. Not with our physical eyes, but with our heart, with the eyes of faith, we can see that he died our death. We can see that he rose again and he's crowned with glory and honor. We can see that he is the perfect man who achieved in our place what we could never achieve in our weakness. We can see Jesus as our propitiation, our victory, our ultimate victory over sin. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we've been rescued from your wrath. That you love us with all of our faults and failures. You love us and you claim us as your sons and your daughters. And by your grace, you are bringing us to glory. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.